pray. Gracious God, kindle within our hearts a greater sense of this good news of great joy that will be to all people. Enable us to celebrate this good news just a little bit more than we have before. Enable us to glorify you, to praise you, to echo the words of these shepherds as we consider the good news of what you have accomplished for us, saving us, forgiving us, making us your beloved children. And it started a long time ago, and your plan of salvation began to reach its culmination in the coming of your son Jesus into this world. We thank you and praise you for that. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Once upon a time, this is how every fairy tale begins, right? And when we hear those words, once upon a time, we know the story we're about to hear isn't real. Sure, it may contain timeless truths for living, it may be filled with practical wisdom and life lessons, but when we hear once upon a time, we know that the events that are about to be narrated really didn't happen. We have a nice modern-day equivalent of once upon a time, by the way. It goes something like this. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. I point this out because please notice the stark contrast between once upon a time or a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away and tonight's scripture. In verse 1, Luke writes, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This wasn't a registration to vote, as we might think of it today, or even a registration to be drafted into the military. It was a registration for the purpose of taxation. It was like a census, and many Bible translations call it that. But, but Luke gives us even more specific information in verse 3. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Not the second registration, mind you. The first one, as if the author Luke knows that at least some people reading his gospel were alive back during the first and second registrations, and they would remember. But this was the first one, not the second. Of course, today, no one cares whether it's the first or the second registration. But it mattered to Luke, because the truth mattered to Luke. He wants us to know that the events he's describing take place in the real world at a very specific time and place in history involving real human beings about whom historians today can even tell us a few things. Luke wants us to know that he's telling the truth, not merely timeless truths for living or practical life lessons, but actual historical facts. Indeed, at the beginning of his gospel in chapter one, Luke's, Luke describes to his friend Theophilus his motivation for writing this gospel in the first place. He says that he has carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. I point this out 
for the benefit of people who've bought into a lie that our culture tells sometimes about Holy Scripture. Years ago, for instance, in an episode of The West Wing, the show about a fictitious president, President Bartlett um, was a Christian of the Roman Catholic variety, but like too many modern-day Christians, unfortunately, he wasn't so sure about the truthfulness of the Bible. He was having an argument with a fellow politician who described himself as an atheist, an unbeliever. And this politician said that he used to be a believer, but then he read the Bible and he found too many things there that he just couldn't believe. And President Bartlett said, yeah, but you can't, you can't take it literally. To which I say, we can take literally that which the authors of Scripture intend for us to take literally. I mean, by all means, there's plenty of poetry in the Bible. We don't take that literally. And then there are plenty of parables in the Bible. We don't take those literally. But Luke is clearly not writing poetry or parables. Here he is writing history, which is why he has grounded his narrative in verifiable historical events. My point is this. If what Luke is describing here really happened to actual historical people, then you've got to admit our lives cannot remain unaffected. If what he's describing really happened, he is forcing us to make a choice. We must respond by saying, I just don't believe these events took place. Therefore, I reject Christianity. Or since I believe these events happened to these real historical people living in the same world in which I live, my life must never be the same. This must change everything. Too many people, including many people who call themselves Christians, float somewhere between those poles. Sure, I'm a Christian, but you can't take that stuff literally. Or worse, they say, I believe the Bible. God said it, I believe it, end of discussion. And then they live most of their lives as if it just doesn't matter. Well, if this describes you, I, I don't mind making you feel a little uncomfortable. Either Luke is telling the truth or he's lying. But if he's telling the truth, that changes everything. But since we, the Tekoa First Methodist Church, believe that Luke is telling the truth, well, how exactly should that change our lives? What difference should that make? I want this sermon to explore that. To begin to answer this, let's remind ourselves of a promise that God makes in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient, of, from ancient days. Bible scholars of the first century rightly interpreted this verse to mean that Bethlehem was the place where the Messiah was to be born. Remember in Matthew chapter 2, when the wise men come to Jerusalem looking for the newborn king of the Jews, the scholars there tell them, well, he's not here because the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem, which is about six miles south of here. 
The Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. But at the beginning of today's scripture, from a merely human perspective, we have one small problem. The Messiah's mother, Mary, was going to give birth to her child very soon, and she happens to be about 80 miles north of Bethlehem in Nazareth. So, if you're God, how are you going to get Mary and her husband Joseph from point A to point B? How are you going to solve this problem? Well, here's one solution. You will put it in the mind of the most powerful ruler the world had ever seen, Caesar Augustus, to take a census of his great empire and require that everyone return to their ancestral homeland to be registered for this census. And that means forcing Mary and Joseph to return to Bethlehem, Joseph's homeland. And voila, problem solved, crisis averted. The Messiah was born in Bethlehem, just as the Old Testament predicted. One pastor points out that God doesn't do things efficiently. Moving hundreds of thousands of people around his empire, like pieces on a chessboard, all for the sake of moving two of the world's more insignificant people, Mary and Joseph, from Nazareth to Bethlehem, so that prophecy can be fulfilled, is not efficient. But it is impressive. (laughs) It's almost like God is showing off. I love the extravagant way that God sometimes gets things done. But consider this. From a strictly human point of view, there appears to be an insurmountable obstacle. How will Mary and Joseph get from Nazareth to Bethlehem when she's probably eight months pregnant? But from God's point of view, no problem at all. God can make happen whatever he wants to make happen. It's no problem for our all-powerful sovereign God. It's not hard for God. There is simply no obstacle that can or will ever prevent God from accomplishing his good purposes in this world. And get this, there's simply no obstacle that can or will prevent God from accomplishing his good purposes in your life, which isn't to say, by the way, that what's easy for God won't often be incredibly difficult for us. Did you hear that? Just because it's easy for God doesn't mean it won't be hard for us. For years, my wife has had a Facebook group called Journey to Bethlehem, in which she invites her friends to walk, or in my case, to jog those 80 miles or so over the four weeks of Advent. And it's a challenge for most of us non-marathon runners to get it finished before Christmas. I know from experience. It's a lot of walking or jogging. And um, by the way, we're not told that Mary and Joseph rode on a donkey or a horse. Mary may have. But even if she did, the journey was still fraught with peril not to mention a lot of discomfort. Many women here know from personal experience that even traveling by car late in the third trimester can be difficult and risky, but that's what Mary did. No sugarcoating it. It's often difficult to be faithful to God. It's often costly to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. We had our um, staff Christmas party last week 
and I was talking to Rich, our new youth pastor, and I learned that he was in the army for three years after high school. He said it was the hardest thing he'd ever done. Yet, he said, if God hadn't called him into ministry, he would have gladly re-enlisted. I asked him to describe one legacy of his time in the army, you know, that continues to influence him in his life today. And he said, the idea that you make sacrifices for a cause greater than yourself. And yeah, that's exactly right. That's what we're called to do as Christians, isn't it? That's why Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 to be a good soldier of Christ Jesus. A good soldier surrenders his own will to the will of his commanding officer. He submits himself to someone else for the sake of a higher cause. And that's what Christ commands us to do. But Rich, but Rich also said something else interesting. He said, being in the army was the hardest thing I've ever done, but I loved it. <laughs> I feel like one of my main tasks as a preacher of the gospel is to convince everyone that being a Christian is a little like that. In many ways, it's the hardest thing you'll ever do, but you'll love it. Because here's the truth. It's only by loving and trusting Christ and surrendering our lives to Christ and putting him first and seeking to please and serve him above everyone and everything else in life that we will find lasting happiness and joy. To be able to say, Christ is my life. He's my reason for getting out of bed in the morning. I owe everything to him. Therefore, I'm going to live my life for him. It's only in saying that and doing that that any of us can know lasting happiness and joy. Think of the joy that Mary and Joseph experienced. Well, Luke describes it. Listen to these words in verses 16 to 20. And they, the shepherds, went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. I love those words about Mary. She treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. If there is treasure waiting on the other side of every trial that I face in life, man, trust me, I can put up with anything. I can endure any hard stuff that comes my way for the sake of my treasure. And so can you. There's a remarkable little verse in Hebrews chapter 10. It's verse 34. The author of Hebrews is writing to a group of Christians who are enduring intense persecution because of their faith in Christ. Listen to what he says. You suffered along with those who were thrown into jail. And when all you owned was taken from you, you accepted it with joy. You knew there were better things waiting for you that will last forever. There's that word, joy. You accepted it with joy. Accepted what with joy? Accepted that all you owned was taken from you. Whew. Nothing that bad has ever happened to me. But if joy is available, even when something bad like that happens, then you better believe I'll take it. 
And that's a kind of joy that we have through a living personal relationship with God through his son, Jesus. These shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, experienced joy when they heard the angels' amazing proclamation unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior, not a surgeon, not a scientist, not a self-help guru, but a savior. So that all of us who turn to Christ in faith and find that our sins are forgiven and we have eternal life That's amazing. I began this sermon talking about how easily God can do miraculous things, you know, like get the most powerful ruler in the world to move his whole empire in order to get a couple of people from Nazareth to Bethlehem. That's not hard for God to do. Or if you remember Matthew's version of the Christmas story, It features the magi, the wise men. We talk about moving heaven and earth when we have to accomplish something difficult. Matthew describes God literally doing something like that. He moved the stars and the heavens in order to get a few lost sinners to travel 700 miles west to Bethlehem so they could meet the newborn King Jesus and be saved. That's not hard for God to do. It's not hard for the same God in Christ to make a paralytic walk or a blind man see or a hemorrhaging woman to stop bleeding. It's not even hard for the same God to raise someone back to life. That's not hard. But the forgiveness of sins, this thing that we often take so lightly, this thing that we take for granted, this is, from God's perspective, incredibly hard. Was it not hard for Jesus, God in the flesh, to sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane and pray for his Father, if possible, to take away this cup of God's wrath that he would have to drink down to the dregs? Was it not hard when Jesus, God in the flesh, endured the beatings, the mockings, the crown of thorns thrust on his head, the nails driven through his hand and feet? Was it not hard when Jesus, God in the flesh, experienced the God-forsaken death, the suffering, the separation from his Father, the hell that we deserve to suffer on the cross? Was it not hard when Jesus, God in the flesh, cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is what forgiveness of our sins cost God. God paid for forgiveness with the blood of his son, Jesus, which is to say, because God is a trinity, God himself paid for it with his own blood on the cross. That's the only way forgiveness is possible. That God could somehow become one of us, live the life of perfect obedience to the Father that we ourselves were unable to live, die the death, the God-forsaken death that we deserve to die, suffer the hell that we deserve to suffer in our place because God loved us that much. God purchased our forgiveness with the shedding of his own blood. And how does God have blood to shed in the first place? How does God have a body that can bear the punishment for our sin in the first place? How does God become a perfect substitute for us human beings in the first place? How does God die in order to save us? By becoming human. 
And that is the meaning of Christmas. That is what we are celebrating this evening. And maybe some of you are saying, Pastor Brent, I think you're confused. (laughs) You're talking so much about Jesus dying on the cross. That's the wrong holiday, you know? (laughs) This is Christmas after all, not Good Friday or Easter Sunday. But brothers and sisters, if you're having those thoughts, you don't understand the meaning of Christmas, the true meaning of Christmas is Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Thanks for listening. If you're in the Toccoa, Georgia area, I hope that you will come and worship with us at Toccoa First. We have live in-person worship every week and we also have online worship. Please see tacoafirstumc.org for more information.